All right, y'all. Let's go back to the beginning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Romans. And uh, this morning we're starting a new section. Uh, We've worked our way through the first two sections, uh, chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 3 through 5. And this morning we're starting chapter 6. Today is the 25th message in the series. And if you're new here, that's how we do. Um, We generally pick a passage and... um, we like to spend time with it, right? We like to spend time in the text. We like to dig in, and we like to, to see what the Spirit is going to show us in it. We're not in a rush, right? The Bible is filet mignon, right? It's not the mystery meat from your school cafeteria, right? You don't want to just gulp it down and pretend like you didn't. Um, you want to spend time with it. You want to savor it, right? You want to observe it and experience it. And, and so um, that's, that's what I'm encouraging us to continue doing, right? Um, over the last month, the elders have been handing out to the members of the church um, journaling Bibles uh, for the book of Romans uh, for the purpose of actually encouraging our members to spend more time during the week in Romans, studying and taking notes, and, and then even on the weekends, um, comparing and jotting and, and just continuing to get into the text. The text is uh, a gift to us from God and uh, will give us life. And so I would encourage all of us to continue to dig in. Uh, Today, we are starting a new section in the letter that is centered on the power of the resurrection. That worked out perfectly since today is Resurrection Sunday. Um, But chapters 6 through 8 really do explore uh, how the resurrection of Christ plays out in real time in our lives, right? Not just promising us a future resurrection. Of course, it does that, and it talks about that as well. But, But how the principle of resurrection, how the power of resurrection actually meets us in, in kind of the, the difficulties of our daily lives. Um, and at the heart of it all is grace, y'all. In fact, at the heart of the book of Romans is grace. It's one of the reasons I absolutely love this book. Um, this book and, and really the rest of the New Testament, but Romans especially, has kind of turned me into a grace junkie. I, I absolutely am convinced that the greatest need of the human soul is love. That the single greatest driving motivation of human behavior is the need for love. Love is what we are created for. Love is the only true wealth in the universe. Love is the only thing that gives meaning to everything else that was created. And there is no greater love than grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unlimited outpouring of God's infinite love. I can't stop talking about it. And that's gotten under some people's skin, honestly, over the years. Uh, I've, I've had a few people at different times in different ways uh, grab me after service or, you know, email me and say, hey, can we have a special meeting? And, and, and you know, the, the gist of their question is generally the same. And, and sometimes it is exactly this, directly quoting, when are you going to start talking about more than grace? Right? When are you going to get over that, Steve? When, when are you going to talk about more than grace, right? The gospel's great, but when are you, you know, when, when are you going to start telling people to start obeying, right? There's a, pastor, there's a lot of sinning going on around here, right? A lot of sinning going on around here. You, you, need to, you need to tell people not just how to be saved, you need to start telling them how to be good. Well, funny enough, that's exactly the question and the challenge that Paul is wrestling with in our text at the beginning of, of Romans 6. Isn't it dangerous to put so much stock in grace. Isn't it, isn't it dangerous? I mean, don't you need the carrot and the stick? I mean, people are just going to do anything 
They're just, they're just going to sin and do more sinning. You need the carrot to reward the good behavior. You need the stick to punish bad behavior, right? You need, you need to, come on, right? If you just rely on somebody's desire for love, you never know what you're going to get. How in the world can you actually produce a moral people without moral boundaries like the law? Listen, y'all, not only is grace enough, it's the only thing that is enough. Where the law can change our behavior. Love can do what no law can because it doesn't just work on behavior. It's not about conforming behavior. It's about transforming the heart. You transform the heart, you get different behavior. That's the bottom line. And God's desire isn't for us to simply rearrange the moral furniture of our hearts. He wants us dead and resurrected. He doesn't want us rebuilding what was. He want us, wants us moving into what is to come. He wants us working in the power of the resurrection. Now, our chapter starts with a really provocative question. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. Now, in order to give context to this, uh, I, I need to go back a little bit to, in order to move forward, right? We're going to need to go back a little bit to, to give the context, to really understand what's going on here, and to set the stage well for us continuing to move forward into Romans 6, right? So, so I want to go back a little bit into verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 and just spend a little bit more time there, right? Look back at chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounds it all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so God gave the law to Israel. Now, I know I'm covering old territory, but, but just to make sure that, that you know, we're on the same page, right? The law was a specific covenant made between Israel and God, right? We read about it in Exodus 19, 20 and following, where, where God showed up to Israel and basically said, hey, y'all, would you like to have a special covenant with me? I'm going to make you a bunch of rules, and if you obey them, you're going to be blessed. And if you break them, you're going to be cursed. And all, nation, all, the, all the nation of Israel said, amen, bring it on, right? We are glad to do this thing. God's like, all right, cool. So, so Exodus 20 is the down payment of the law. It's what we know as the Ten Commandments. In fact, most of us are pretty familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Um, you know, the, the thou shalt nots, right? And, and there are Ten Commandments. And if that's all there were, honestly, that would be enough. But there's way more than that. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament that govern everything about Jewish life, from what they eat to what they wear, how they worship, when they worship, how they do business, when they do business, who they do business with. I mean, it is extremely extensive, right? Obey, and you'll be blessed. Disobey, and you'll be cursed, right? Now, Israel voluntarily entered into this covenant with God. And voluntarily said, yes, we will do this. Now, what's interesting is before Moses had come down from the mountain with the law, they had already broken the law. And Moses came down and the nation of Israel had melted down all their gold into a golden calf and they were down, bowing down before it. And the very first law is you shall have no other God before me, right? Is that they had already broken the first commandment of the law before uh, Moses even returned. They, they couldn't obey 
the law. But that doesn't mean Israel didn't value the law. They did. They took great pride in the law. They were dedicated to the law. In fact, they, they came to see it as something that made them better than others. We have the law, you don't. We're God's chosen people, you're not, right? And so they, they came to see it actually as a point of pride and even salvific, that because we have the law and we do our best to obey it, we're saved. We're God's people. We'll be blessed. But here's the thing, y'all. The law, instead of restraining sin or fixing sin or helping make good people better, actually increases sin. That, that was the purpose of the law. God didn't give the law to make good people better. God made the law so that people who thought they were good people could see they weren't. That no matter how hard they tried, they, they couldn't fix their own problems, right? God did this as an expression of grace. Now, even the law itself isn't grace. It's demanding and, and, and doesn't give you anything you don't earn, and, and it will give you the curse that it promises when, when you break it. It was grace that led God to give it, because its purpose was ultimately to drive people to grace, right? So in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul has established that there are two critically important humans to the rest of humanity. And that the law plays into this dynamic in a really powerful way, right? So, so Romans 5 establishes that there's Adam and there's Jesus, right? Adam, the first Adam, uh, the first human, uh, acted on behalf of the rest of humanity when it rebelled against God, right? The name Adam, Adam, actually is Hebrew for, for man, right? He's, he's the first human and he acted for the rest of humanity. And of course, we know that Adam sinned and that Adam died, right? And, and that created a humanity. And everybody who was born after him was born into this humanity, right? And, 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 and Adam's sin defines now the human experience. Now, let's unpack this a little bit because there are nuances here that I think are really, really, this isn't just, okay, that's great. That's interesting theology, Steve. No, this is ridiculously practical, y'all. Like this plays out in your life every single day. Let me, let me show you how, right? In, in chapter 5, verse 20, take a look back up there. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded the more. There, there are two words used here for sin, trespass and sin. Uh, the word for trespass, uh, paraptoma, the Greek word, uh, the root of that word is pipto, which means to fall. The law came in to increase the fall the effects of the fall. Right? Paul's talking about the, the sin, the singular sin of Adam that is then replicated as the singular sin at the root of every human that was born as a child of Adam, the sin of Genesis chapter 3, right? Where, where God gave Adam and Eve an entire garden and he said to them, you can eat from any tree in the garden you want, right? But just not that one. The knowledge of good and evil, leave that one alone, y'all. There's a lot of great fruit enjoy yourself, right? Dig in, just not that one. And, and in so doing, he gave them the opportunity to obey, which is a, a willful um, act on their choice that would align them with love. And of course, they, they chose not to obey, they chose to rebel. They said to God, you're not, you're not going to be the Lord over us, we're going to be Lord over ourselves, we're going to eat this. 
Um, because we're not content being created in the image of God. We want to be like God. We want to be equal to God. We want to be our own gods. We want to mark the boundaries of our own glory. We want to define the nature of our own pleasures. We, we want to pursue our own security. We will do for ourselves what we used to depend on you to do for us. And in that day, they died. And you're like, wait a minute, Steve, I know that part of the Bible. They didn't die. They they continued living and they had a bunch of kids. Well, that is true, but that doesn't mean they didn't die. Because to die in the Bible doesn't mean to cease to exist. It means to be separated from life, right? Very simple concept. So in the day they ate of the garden, they died. They were separated from the source of life, which later led to their physical death, the separation of the spirit from their body. They didn't cease to exist. They were created in the image of an eternal God and they were eternal beings. Can't get around that right? But they did die. Death came in as a result of their actions, right? And so as a result, they were cut off from God, the source of life, right? They were cut off from themselves, right? When you read through Genesis 3, it's profound exploration of the human condition, right? They, they covered themselves with, with fig leaves, right? There was the birth of shame. They had, been, they had lost uh, uh, the birth of the inner critic. They, they became their own worst enemy, Right? They lost their connection with God, the source of life. When he came and walked in the cool of the evening, it wasn't an invitation to intimacy. It was a threat because his holiness now was alien to them. They were no longer in community with one another. They were now in competition with one another. When they came before God, they were, like trying to, they were competing to see who could throw the other one under the bus faster. She gave me the fruit. He did it. She did it. Right? The serpent did it. Right? And then, of course, at the end of the chapter, we find that the The creation itself will rise up against them, giving them thorns and thistles instead of yielding to their hand as the steward of creation. All the critical relationships, all the critical connections that made life life died. They now faced the separation, right? The death of the critical connections that made life worth living every single day, right? And into that mix, God gave the law to increase the trespass, to increase the effects of that choice, to increase the effects of the fall. In other words, to magnify death. And the result was an increase in sin, right? So so again, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, that's the second word, hamartia. The Greek word hamartia has as its root this idea of missing the mark. Right? It came from a, a archery, right? So if, if you were an archer and, and you were shooting and you, and you missed your target, you were out of the competition, you failed uh, because you, you missed your mark, right? Because the trespass was increased, sin was increased. Because the effects of the fall were increased, the missing of the mark was increased, right? So into this mix of sin and death, God added the law to make it worse, Right? So so understanding, why did God give the law? God gave the law to actually increase the effects of the fall and increase sin. When we were cut off from God's presence, we were cut off from the satisfaction of our deepest desires. Are you following me? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, man, they were productive. They had loving relationships. They didn't compete with each other. They didn't argue with each other. They didn't defraud each other. They didn't degrade each other. They walked in humble dependence on God. They were always secure. They were never afraid. They never worried whether or not they were worthy of love. They didn't compete for significance with one another. They were covered with the very glory and honor of being created in the image of God. 
right? They didn't have to distract themselves from their draining lives because they took such joy in the productivity of their lives that when it came time to rest, they could genuinely rest. Like, like they didn't have to chase other things to, to try to calm their exhausted and distracted minds. Are you getting the picture of what it was like and what they lost? Their deepest desires were satisfied in the very one who was designed to satisfy them. Their need for significance, their need for worthiness of love, their need for security, their need for rest and comfort were all met in God and in the good creation He had given them, right? When they spiritually died and they were cut off from those things, they were cut off from the fulfillment of their desires, but they still had the desires. They just became disordered desires. Those desires for significance and worthiness of love and, 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 and respect and, and security and rest and, and comfort, those, and those things still drove them. But now they, instead of driving them to God, they drove them against God. And in driving, instead of driving them to one another in love and in generosity, it drove them against one another in greed and in competition. The trespass. The fall resulted in death, a cutting off, a separation from what gives life, leading to sin, us missing the mark. Y'all, what are we aiming at? What does it mean we miss the mark? Well, Steve, obviously, it means that we're missing the mark of obeying God, and, and that's true. I wouldn't disagree with that, but I think we're missing the mark on a whole lot more than that. I think we're missing the mark on everything. We're missing the mark on the purpose of creation. Everything we aim at, which is designed to meet our deepest needs, misses the mark every time. Let me ask you something. Your latest, greatest plan for personal joy, security, happiness, worthiness, and respect, how's that working out for you? Are you perfectly joyful? Are you perfectly secure? Are you perfectly significant and content with your place in the world? Are, 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 you, are you like totally, you don't have to answer because I already know. Because you're not unique in the human experience. This is the way it plays out for all of us. We chase what we chase for the promises they promise and those promises never fully deliver. So we keep chasing. And we keep running because our disordered desires keep turning us to the things God created instead of the God who created them. Our disordered desires keep craving the ultimate fulfillment of the presence and the goodness of God, but we keep turning to things that aren't the ultimate goodness and presence of God. We fight against the the humble dependence that would lead us into a deeper experience of God's love, and we rise instead to provide for ourselves to fight for ourselves, to establish ourselves, to protect ourselves, to to comfort ourselves. The trespass leads to sin. The fall leads to us missing the mark. We crave security, significance, worthiness, and rest. And instead of feasting on God's presence and God's love to have those needs met, we look instead to creation to do for us what only God can do. And because we never get what we're chasing, we keep chasing it. We, we never hit the mark, so we just start shooting for a new one. No matter how much we get, we still fall short. 
So what I want you to catch is we're using good things in bad ways. Not bad things, right? Your job's a good thing, but, but when you look to it to give you ultimate security, it becomes a bad thing. Your relationships are good things, but when you start looking to those things to make you feel worthy of ultimate love, you turn them into bad things because you're putting God-sized weight on things that aren't God. Right? When you turn to your, your distractions, your reading or your video games or, or, or your pleasures, and you start looking to those things and saying, you're going to give me ultimate rest, we take a good thing and we turn it into a bad thing because we put God weight on something that can't bear that weight. Listen, y'all, the law was a good thing. But a straight tool in an unsteady hand still draws a crooked line. It was a perfect path to the fullness of life that nobody could follow. So why would God give a law that promised blessing but would ultimately only result in others being cursed? Ultimately to show us our need for grace. See, listen, y'all, the law couldn't get anybody out of this circle. Are Are you catching that? Like the law was added to this mix and it was never intended to get anyone out of this circle. It was only designed to make the circle worse. To to increase our awareness of the circle we were in that, that we were living vain and futile lives chasing things that couldn't give us what they were promising to deliver. The law itself wasn't grace, but the intent and the giving Absolutely was gracious. He didn't give the law to make you better. He gave you the law to increase your sin. To increase your awareness of your need for grace. But don't worry, Paul assures us, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Right? What the law stirs up, grace forgives. What the law covers in shame, grace cleanses with love. And this prompts Paul to ask the sticky question of verse 1. Right? That leads us, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If my increased sin results in God's increased grace. Now, I've heard a variation of this question quite a bit where people are like, well, Steve, come on, man. If I'm forgiven, does it really matter? Can't I just do what I want? Can't I just do this bad thing? Because I already know I'm forgiven. Jesus died for me. I'm secure, right? I'm not going to lose my salvation, right? That's a variation of the question. Paul takes that actually a step further. Paul's question here. Um, it it goes to the point of saying, look, if when I sin, God's grace increases, and when God's grace increases, God's glory increases, am I not glorifying God by sinning? Because the more I sin, the more God gives grace. The more God gives grace, the more glory God receives. So therefore, I'm being a good Christian by sinning more. Right? Isn't that the logic, Paul, that your argument would take us to? Verse 2, by no means. The Greek phrase there, me genoito, is very strong. Right? Some translations translate it as God forbid. Um, if kids weren't present, I'd give you the Steve version, but I'm not. Um, it's very strong. Like, no. Okay? That, that's kind of what, what Paul is saying, right? Don't even go down that path. That's not where this argument goes, Right? What does Paul mean that we've died to sin, right? How how can we who have died to sin still live in it? What does Paul mean that we died to sin? And and when did we die to sin? And how do we die to sin? And if I died to sin, why is it so active and present in my life, right? If I'm dead to sin, 
How come I'm, I'm cursing under my breath when my kid throws his milk on the floor again? Every time. Why am I provoked so easily if I'm dead to sin? Because it sure doesn't feel dead. Man, it sure feels active and restless in, in my heart. Those are the questions that Paul's going to dig into in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Right? That, that's where we're going with this whole thing. But let me give you kind of the heart of the answer right up front, because that's actually where, where Paul goes in verses 3 and 4, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, when Jesus came, he came as a, as a new Adam. Right? Adam was the father of the human race and his actions affected every human born after him. Jesus came as as a new Adam, or, or in 1 Corinthians 15, it calls him the last Adam, because there was the first Adam, and then there was Jesus, and there won't be another Adam, right? There are two representatives of the human race, and that's it, right? Um, and, and what's cool is that he didn't show up as a human, God become man, kind of show up and be like, hey, y'all, I'm human as you were supposed to be. Look at me over here. I'm living the life you should have lived. Right? And if they just turned around and said, maybe you should be more like me, that would just be like a new law. Fix yourself. Try harder. Do better. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't show up as a human alongside humans. Right? As as perfect human alongside degraded humanity. That wouldn't help anyone. Instead, he was born one of us under the realm of sin. Now, we need to be careful because he was born without sin, right? He himself was born without sin, even though he lived and was born into the realm of sin. He was born into this circle, but not of this circle, right? This was God's radical plan to save us. God became man. The creator became part of his creation, and he lived in the realm of death, even though he had done nothing to deserve death. He did not suffer from disordered desires, even though he lived in a world afflicted by disordered desires. He was surrounded every single day by people trying to get from creation what only God can give. Every day. Every single day, he continued walking in humble hum- in, in dependence on his father. Having his life fully met, his need fully met, his direction fully given in his relationship with God. He walked in complete, humble dependence on God. But he was born in this realm of death. And in fact, he was born a Jew under the law. And though he didn't need the law, he fully obeyed the law. And he was the first human to ever actually completely obey it to the point of actually earning its blessing instead of its curse. The only human to ever live, the only Jewish person to ever live, to accomplish that. He succeeded in all the ways the first Adam failed. And then he died. Not as a victim, but as our hero. He was sinless, but he became our sin. He was truly alive, 
but he yielded to our death. He had never violated the law. And yet he died under its curse. Why? So that he might be our substitute. So that he might take our place. So death swallowed him, but could not keep him. Because he alone could and did pay the full price of death that, that was a resulting of sin, right? Because he had no sin of his own, he was the perfect substitute for us. And he was able to pay the price for our sin. And he satisfied God's justice in regard to our cosmic treason. He drank the bitter cup to the dregs. And instead of staying dead, he killed death, <laughs> right? And when he was raised from the dead, listen, y'all, he created a new humanity. Unlike every human who had ever come before him, he didn't just die and stay dead. He actually defeated death. And when he rose from the dead, it was a proclamation that, that, that there is a man who's truly human. But he was doing more than simply glorifying God in himself. He was creating a new humanity that might glorify God alongside him. When he died, he didn't just die. He didn't die for his own sin. He didn't have any. He died for ours, right? When he rose, he, he didn't just rise for his own glory. He rose to restore ours. He entered the kingdom of Adam in order to become a new Adam and create a new humanity and freeing us to walk in the power of the resurrection, this new life. Where our deepest desires are no longer cut off from what fulfills them. Are you following me? See, when we believe in Jesus, because that's the invitation, the goodness of all of this is extended to us by grace. It's grace. We receive it by simply trusting the one who makes the promise, trusting the one who was our hero and our substitute. We enter it by simply responding with love to the invitation of love, with trust to the promise that we will be received. When, when we believe, we are, we are moved from the realm of Adam to the realm of Jesus, from the old man to the new man, from the realm of sin and death to the realm of grace righteousness, and resurrection. And as a result, we are no longer cut off from the source of life. The trespass of our first father has been undone. And as a result, we can now, instead of competing with God, walk in humble, joyful dependence on God. We can feast on the security and the significance and the worthiness, and the delightful rest that the presence of God gives us. Jesus undid the original transgression, and he freed us from our slavery to sinning, from our need to keep shooting for things that aren't going to give us the fullness of life, asking them to deliver on a promise they can't deliver on. We can stop performing and pretending and working. We can stop looking to our jobs to give us ultimate significance. We can stop looking to relationships to give us ultimate worthiness. We can stop looking to the world to feed our need for security. Because we once again are connected to God through Christ. 
we are deeply and profoundly loved and accepted. Not based on our performance, but based on His. Not because we are good, but because He has been good on our behalf. We didn't earn it with our performance. We can't lose it with our sin. And that should free us to rest in it. To find our deepest needs met. Listen, y'all. When you believed in Jesus, you were baptized into His death. Greek word baptize means baptizo. It means to be immersed, right? So when we baptize, someone is immersed in water and they, they are brought back up. And in Paul's theology, in Paul's mind, the conversion baptism experience is, is interlinked, intertwined. As soon as someone became a believer, they were baptized. We find that pattern throughout the New Testament, right? And, and so he says, when you were baptized, when you were converted and baptized, you were baptized into the death of Christ, That's not just a historic reality. It's not just a historic fact. It is an ongoing spiritual reality that when you were baptized, Jesus died to sin. He overcame death. He won the blessing of the law. And when you were baptized through faith, when you became a believer in Jesus, you were baptized into that death and delivered from it into this new realm of resurrection. So that when Jesus was raised, so were we, spiritually and later physically. In the same way that Adam died spiritually on the day he sinned and later died physically, we are spiritually made alive the moment we believe in Christ with the promise that we will later be physically resurrected with the full redemption of our bodies. We'll get into that in Romans 6. He gets... Some exciting stuff coming up, y'all. But let me tell you this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 tells us this. Christ rose as the first fruits. The first fruits offering in the Old Testament was the first of the crop offered to God in thanksgiving for the harvest and in promise for the harvest to come. Jesus was the first one raised. He was not the last. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the last Adam, but what's beautiful is that he's called the second man. You know why? Because he was only the second human to be truly human in human history, but he won't be the last. Because he's in the business of recreating humanity. He will reestablish the glory of God in the humans that God created in his image. He will transform us into his image. He will set us free into the power of the resurrection. So let's go back to this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why would we keep on sinning? Why would we purposely continue missing the mark? When we can now hit it. Why would we keep chasing things that don't deliver on their promises when we now have the promise that delivers? Why would we keep trying to establish our significance in things that are comparative and degrading instead of resting our significance on the declaration of God that we are covered with the glory of God? Why would we try to establish our worthiness of love by trying to earn the affection of of a small group of people or or trying to earn the praise of, of, of somebody we admire instead of resting on the fact that the God of the universe has declared us his beloved children because we are in his beloved child, Jesus. 
Why would we keep chasing rest in things that can't give it? Our distractions, the things that leave us more exhausted than we arrive, the things that, that, that rob us of, of our, our, our emotional and mental well-being and, and drain us of spiritual vitality when we could instead come and sit at the table of grace and feast on the love of God and not just find temporary rest and distraction, but genuine renewal for our exhausted souls. Why would we continue? If, if grace covers all of our sin, then why wouldn't we just continue to sin? Because to continue in sin would be insane. Why would we continue pretending when the reality is laid out before us? Why would we continue performing when we can step off the stage, take off our masks, and be loved by the only one whose love matters. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. We now stand in a new relationship with God. And that new standing delivers on its promises. That's where we're going in Romans 6. We're going to explore this incredible dynamic, and we're going to talk about why it's so hard, y'all. We're not just going to talk pie in the sky, all right? Because let's be honest, this stuff is challenging. Sin is deceptive. We continue to be allured. Sometimes, you know, things rise up in us that we hate, and we don't know how to subdue them. How in the world is grace going to do what the law could never do? How does grace get us off the treadmill of self-improvement and self-performance and actually get us into the business of resting in the love of God so that we're genuinely transformed and not simply working to improve ourselves? That's what we're going to keep talking about. I hope that you will join us for it. For this morning, let's come back to the beautiful declaration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me close with some word of prayer, and then we're going to share communion together. Father, I thank you that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I mean, what an incredible, incredible message this gospel is, this good news. That even though we had sinned against you, even though, even though our sin was, wasn't just generic, it was personal. It was pointed in rebellion against your authority, in accusation against your goodness, in treason against your kingdom, in pride saying that you couldn't do for us so we would do for ourselves. That, Lord, you did not get offended You are the model of love and humility. And even in the insanity of our sin, you refuse to abandon us to the hell we were creating for ourselves. So you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You became one of us. You obeyed in ways we did not. And you died in ways we deserved too. So that when you rose, we might rise with you. Lord, we thank you 
for the power of your resurrection. We thank you that it frees us into grace. That we might be loved and freed from the slavery of missing the mark again and again and again. To step off the field and just be loved. And having been loved to be changed. We thank you for that.